Welcome to the Great Lakes Horror Company, brought to you by members of the Horror Writers Association Ontario Chapter. I'm Andrew Robertson, your host for today, and I'm thrilled to have a special guest with us uh, from Ontario, and that's New York Times and Globe and Mail bestselling author Kelly Armstrong. Kelly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Kelly, uh, for, for those of you who haven't been to a major bookstore recently, uh, is the author of dozens of books, including the Canesville series, which is one of my favorites, uh, the wildly popular Women of the Otherworld series, and many, many more. Uh, today, in addition to speaking with Kelly, she, she's also agreed to give us a reading from one of her books, so stay tuned for that. Uh, but let's begin. Uh, the Great Lakes Horror Company podcast focuses on the darker side of writing. So, Kelly, as a storyteller, what originally drew you to write about the paranormal and the supernatural? I honestly do not know. I get asked this all the time. Uh, and I always sort of jokingly blame too many Saturday mornings watching Scooby-Doo. And I did, and that certainly influenced me. But it was sort of this overall love of myth and folklore. And, I mean, I read every possible reference book on that. And the spookier, the better. So once I started writing, I really did start writing horror from a very young, uh, young age. And, you know, in my childhood and my teens, it, it was all that type of writing. I did read an interview where you reference um, reading folklore and, and trying to put spins on it while retaining a bit of the original meaning. Uh, and, and I myself do a, a bit of the same. I'm really obsessed with that sort of like traditional folktale. Were there any that really stuck out for you? Any sort of the, the myths or legends being someone who lived in a rural area of Southern Ontario? Yeah, I mean, just I think any type of legend would get my attention. And particularly, I, I believe I was drawn to the more gruesome ones. So uh, <laughs> if I was I if I was to like look back at some of the earliest ones that I uh, that I can remember, I can certainly re recall, especially some of the early werewolf ones. And that would be, you know, the story of the noble woman who, you know, shoved, you know, there's something killing in the forest and, you know, the wolf gets its paw cut, cut off and the next morning the noble, nobleman's wife has her arm bandaged, bandaged up. You know, that type of folklore really stuck with me. I I remember when I was a kid, and I've actually referenced this on the podcast before, there was a story book in the library called um, A Thousand and One Stories of Ghosts That Go Bump in the Night, and that was one of them, where he goes out to, to hunt this wolf and only gets the paw, and then it's his wife the next day. Yes, That's it is, and that one. is sort of, sort of one of those creepier stories, yeah. Now, when you were growing up, did you have a... a sort of gothic persona, not necessarily in style. I don't mean like, did you tease your hair up like Robert Smith or anything, but did you have a gothic sensibility that people caught on to where you, you were writing about these evil dolls and evil characters even then? I actually didn't. And that, and uh, that made it quite funny because yes, <laughs> as a kid, when people did read uh, what I had written, they would be, that was not what I expected at all because I wasn't somebody who was into whether it was the goth 
sub subculture or anything like that. I was extremely average. Um, so we, so yeah, yes. When especially when when I would start dating and you'd reach that the point where the you know where the where the guy says says you know I really want to read what you've what you've written. Are you sure? Are you really, really sure? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's the best part. You know, it's like in the Adams family where Wednesday Adams says, you know, I'm dressed as a psychopath. They look like everyone else. And she's just dressed up for Halloween as, as a regular average person. I think it's, yeah. it's a bit of a sneak attack that you've got going there. <laughs> yep. Now, in your writing, in your writing career, you've crossed a lot of genres um, to the point that a lot of people consider you to have your own genre you've crossed uh, thrillers paranormal there's some romance there's urban fantasy and horror and one of the themes that we've explored in this podcast and i'd like to ask you about is the writer struggled to create a believable sense of peril or crisis in an age where we're so connected to everything um and and you've done that in some very believable ways in your novels but for people that aren't familiar with your work yet or have only read a couple of pieces how do you keep the books sort of thrilling and scary and horrific in an age where we've got devices like cell phones and surveillance cameras and, and technological devices everywhere? It really does make it make it a tougher. Um, I actually, a few years back, did something online where I had asked people to give me their their you know top top reasons why your character cannot use their cell phone. <laughs> and it's because you do run into that, that it's like how many times you just can't have a character have a working cell phone because otherwise the question would be why are they not calling somebody for help? Mm -hmm. So yet it was like all of these like reasons why at that moment their cell phone is not actually working. It does make it tougher. And you know, Google, why can't they just go and Google something? Why can't they look that up? Why can't they get they get uh, they get help? And you come 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 up with all these workarounds. I mean, sometimes you can do it through the supernatural, but that can be a bit of a cheat if if just magically things aren't working. So you kind of have to have it in a way. I think it works well with the supernatural stuff. Is Maybe you can't call somebody because nobody's going to actually believe you. You know, whatever you're having, experiencing, there's a very you know, select number of people you can call up for, up for help. And if they're not, not, not there, then you're really stuck. That works. Um, and also, some of your stories are set in really remote locations. So do you find that, that using remote and unusual villages and tiny towns um, – helps with that sort of suspension of disbelief where someone can't just reach out or they're trapped in a situation where they, they can't make that call for fear of dominoes falling. It does. I mean, I've started a new mystery series, which has no fantasy in it at all, but I have had readers say that they consider it, you know, actually got a very good horror, horror, horror core to it, although it's mystery, and it's because it's set in a small town in the Yukon that's totally off the, off the grid. So there, there are no cell phones. There are no, no cell phones. Radios do not work well in this area. Um, they have no internet, no, no, not, no, you know, nothing except forest. You, you know, you are completely surrounded by endless forest and sort of that horror of the unknown and what is very natural out there 
but it can kill you <laughs> and you can get lost in it. And all of those really primal fears that aren't about werewolves, vampires, but about those really real things uh, out there. And if you do that and you also take away all the modern, modern tech, it does have that really isolated sort of probably I would say one of my most frightening settings despite it being not fantasy or supernatural at all now you're referring to city of the lost yes yes I'm I'm actually just at the beginning of that novel and I I I'm at the point where I know exactly what you're talking about, but I know that you don't like spoilers and I don't like spoilers. So we're not going to go into that. <laughs> um, but, but in this age that we're, we always have a phone in our hand and we're always like opening it to check to see, has someone contacted us? Has someone in, in touch with me? Is, is the new terror, is the new horror being disconnected from the phone in our palm? It actually might be because it really does have this very, this very sort of, off-putting sense to it. I mean, when I do go someplace into the forest, often that's where I'll have no cell phone access. And you're so accustomed to it that just pulling you out and seeing the, like, no signal. And there's nobody around. And you're like, normally anyplace else, you could call for uh, you know, help. And we're so accustomed to that, that even just the idea that I can't get, on, get you know, online is just unsettling. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think we, we, have, we, we, we have come very, very quickly to, you know, rely on that because it wasn't that long ago where we couldn't have, have even imagined being able to go hiking at least close to a city and be able to just call for, call for help if we got lost. I, I do think the funniest thing is when you're away with a group of friends and you realize the cell phones aren't working because you're so remote and you get this panic. Well, what if I need to contact someone? And you think, you don't think of a payphone. And then when you go to look for one, where are they now? There's none. We're, <laughs> they we're are not. The there are so few of them. And I think I actually had to use one. I can't re- recall why, but it was maybe a couple of years ago. And I found one, and it was not even working. And it was like, how long has this been not even working? You know? <laughs> well, even if it was working, the last one that I had to use, I picked up. And I looked at it, and I thought... What is that on the phone? <laughs> and it's a yeah. type of thing you, you don't even want to put it to your ear or near your mouth. But there was a point where, you know, for those of us of a certain age, we use them regularly without questioning it. I think that we've um, we've actually debilitated ourselves with technology at this point, and without it, we're actually closer to to creating our own horrific experience of disconnection because we don't know what to do now when that device I doesn't think so, work. Because yeah. We would have never, as kids, I would have never thought, you know, I, I could just quickly call, call, call your home, call anything. My, my your parents would not have, a, have a thought that. But I, but, but I cannot imagine my you know, teenagers being out and not being able to get, uh, to get hold of them by text or phone or something, something else. Yeah. Now, where you live, is that, is that often an experience that you get or is that more when you're you're on vacation or you go to the wilderness? On, on, on vacation, really. I do have my little, I have a little writing cabin in the back field where I, where I live. And it must just be in a spot where I can sometimes get cell service and sometimes not. And clearly no internet there. But I actually can use that as a really good excuse 
I say I have no cell service back back there and then just leave my phone. So you know, nobody <laughs> nobody can you know, contact me when I am writing in this backfield, which actually isn't that far out of civilization. It's just in our backfield. So there is a benefit to being able to disconnect, but I think we all feel that we need an excuse for it. <laughs> now yep. now moving on to your actual writing habit and and having this cabin to write in you're really prolific you've got a lot of books out in in what some people would consider a short amount of time very very popular um and 13 novels in other world alone uh, do people often ask you about the the level of commitment that you put to writing and how you create outstanding work because i think for a lot of us it's a struggle to to get through to one book, whereas you've got two or three coming out at the same time. Yeah. And for me, honestly, it really has been, it, it's, it's akin to that, you know, muscle that after you use it more and more, it gets easier and easier. I often say that when I first got my contract for my first book, my agent said, now, because you're writing in genre fiction, they're going to expect a book a year from from you. And I panicked. I thought it took me years to write that that you know first one, mm-hmm. which 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 was not my first book, but my first published book. But I thought I cannot possibly write a book a year. And I'm sure that you know hopefully someday I'll be doing well enough that I can write a book every 18 months. And here I am now. I could write a book every 18 months and I'm writing two or three a, a year and it just became because I got used to it and because when I was first published, I had uh, three young kids, so I had very little time and now they're all teenagers, so no problem now with time and it just, as that time freed up, I was writing more and I'd learned to write faster. I had learned how to just sit my butt down and write and not have to sit there and stare at the blank screen. I can sort of turn it off and on much faster now. Now you've got teenagers and teenagers are notorious for loving horror and freaky things and wanting to see the freaky movies. And I remember as teenagers, we all read Salem's lot. We read every Anne Rice book we could get our hands on. and, And there's just that there's something about being a teenager that you love that sort of dark side of things. How do your how do your kids feel about the books? Do they have friends that read them? Because you do you do young adult, but some of your grown up books I'm sure translate to that audience as well. They do, and some of them do. Yeah, so so you know they would have friends who do. Although I think they they just find that a little bit weird. (laughs) (laughs) Well, teenagers have have to find their parents weird. Exactly. You know, we'll have kids over, or you know, friend friends over who have read my stuff, and no one will let. Well, you know, tell me because it's just that's just weird. You know, it, it kind of exists in this separate thing where who I am as a mother is not the same person who's writing those books. So, <laughs> you know, so they do read some of them, and my uh, daughter is 24, so uh, she reads all of them, and she would be my first reader for everything. When uh, when you were that age, who were you reading? Who did you read growing up? When I was that age, when I was the boys' age, and they are like 15, 16, it would have been clearly Stephen, Stephen, uh, Stephen King. I was reading him right out of, probably at about like 12, because that sort of jumping out of reading children's and then going straight into horror and uh, 
high fantasy. So whether it, it would have been Stephen King, Clive Barker, Peter Straub, I mean, there was a whole bunch there that I was reading, which, of course, really informed what I was writing at the time. Uh, do you have a do you have a favorite from back then? For me personally, it is actually Salem's Lot, which I always cite because that was the first book I read as a teenager that I thought, oh yeah, that was good. And then you know, it's bedtime, you go to bed. Then in the middle of the night, you just your eyes rocket open, and you you're certain that there's a vampire clawing behind the wall. Was there something like yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly Salem Salem's Lot was you know one of the big ones for me. Um, Cujo too, because it was something that was so normal. You know, Kuto yeah. was not a supernatural novel, and I love dogs, but just that how he created an entire novel, which is about a rabid dog, was just a really, I think, interesting lesson in how you can write that sort of claustrophobic, real-life horror there. And then once I got older, I think now I, I would say my, fa- my favorite is The Stand, Mm-hmm. But when I was a younger, younger teen, that was a bit much for me. So It's true. Some of his books as well, you would look at and you would think, I want to read that, but whew, that's a big book. It's <laughs> <awfully> long. <laughs> now, um, I wanted to, to touch briefly on your first novel, Bitten, uh, from 2001 when it came out. That features a character who in that world is the only known female war- werewolf. And uh, that book went on to become a series on sci-fi. So what was it like as a writer who'd always wanted to write that suddenly got to see their characters come to life on screen? It was very cool to have it made into a a TV show. For me, it was really just about people actually wanting to make that, to take something that I had written and say, you know, we think that would do really, really well in a different, different medium. Um, especially when it had been, for me, it felt like so long since I'd written that. That's sort of when the book first comes out, you, you can think, oh, it'd be really cool if it was a movie or you know, TV show. But Bitten had been out for so long by that point, and it had had some close calls for uh, movies and that, that I kind of figured by that point that it uh, wasn't, wasn't happening. And I was actually winding up the uh, series as it came out as a, a TV show, which was very cool. How did your uh, how did your readers react to that version? <laughs> uh, it was very mixed. So, I think, I, I think really it always is. is. I, I, <laughs> I think it always is that you get. I will get people who say they loved it, um, and I will get people who say they hated it. And it seems like there's there's this real split there um and it is and it it's it's impossible to tell with with anything like that how people are going to react i think i found it a big shock in the in the first year was just when people did not like it you know they were very quick to come back and tell me and they really felt i think in some cases that they that i had let them let them down kind of difficult to be to be a dealing with because you know we don't have any control over the show and there's nothing that you could do that would please everybody out out there oh, of i'm course sure not. that if it had been made to please those who were unhappy those who were happy with it would have been unhappy so yeah i i think that's very true actually the episode after of the podcast after this one that you and i are talking in uh we're going to be talking about uh branding as a writer and the uh the sort of threat of 
someone creating either an illustration or a photographic image or a movie of one of your characters and what that can do for the reader, positive and negative, because readers, I think, have a, they really hold the characters close to their heart and they have an idea of it. And when someone else presents their idea of that character as a visual, it may kind of take it all apart. But I mean, it's, it's a big accomplishment. I think, um, Everyone was afraid when Interview with the Vampire came out that it wasn't going to work. And, oh, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. But what an incredible film came out of that. I mean, none, I of, know. none of the and rest I of can, them. Yeah. <laughs> but it I was... can remember that when Anne Rice, you know, was very much against Tom Cruise playing Lestat. Like, she really was openly, vocally against it. And then after it, after it came out, I think she, like, took out a full-page ad in a variety saying he actually works, you know, because it's, it's very tough to see. And I have always said for a, for a, you know, any character, it's not whether or not they resemble that character, but can they play that character? That was a big one for me. I bought a special purple frock coat. I went out to see it. I was sure it was going to be awful and it was incredible. You know, it's, you, you never know when someone else translates your idea, how it's going to work. Now for, yep. for your, uh, before the reading, I just wanted to touch on two more things. Um, are there any other works that you have out there that may be being considered for a series or a film right now? I'm just, I'm just trying to get the, the lowdown on that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I have a couple of my uh, YA series are under contract, but they have been for years. They mm -hmm. have been, they have been optioned. Um, and there are always people looking at at turning you know, there's, there's someone looking at Canesville who's you know got it right and got it you know trying to you know do do uh do a something uh something you know, with it I rarely say that unless asked point point blank because <laughs> as soon as you you say this you know series has been optioned people are like when does it come out and it's like no no we are so many steps back from that and the chances of it happening are so small I I kind of feel like I had bitten turned into a show and that's probably my one and only shot and if other books get optioned then you know it's nice to have them have have them optioned and have people think that it would make a good show or a you know, movie but the chances of it happening again very very small I think, yeah, I think that's something that, that people grow to understand when they have a favorite author and they find out something's optioned. It's like um, A Confederacy of Dunces um, apparently has been optioned several times and people have been waiting years for this film that's never going to happen. But I think yeah. it's exciting to know that the option, uh, it's a terrible pun, but the option is there. <laughs> so there's, there's exactly. the possibility of it. Now, yeah. both, both you and I are going to be appearing at Fan Expo Canada this year. Uh, what can your readers and fans expect at the event? What are you going to be par participating in and where can they get to see you? Okay, so I have got two panels. I believe one is Saturday and one is Sunday. One, and I wouldn't, re I wouldn't recall the exact times for those. Um, but yeah, there are there are, there are two horror horror panels that I am on. I am also doing signings in the autograph area at one o'clock both Saturday and Sunday, and those are completely open. There is no fee, obviously, to get my signature. I always get to ask that because, of course, the actors do, do charge, but for authors, people are bringing up our books, which they have already bought. Therefore, we're fine signing them for free, obviously. <laughs> well, I'll definitely be there with mine. I've got several. Um, but 
now we're going to get a reading from you. And, and I'm very pleased uh, that you're going to be reading from Deceptions, which is part of the Canesville series. And as I said, that's one of my personal favorites. So I look forward to Good. it. Okay. So what this is, this is from Deceptions, which is book of three and just came out in paperback. Book four just came out in the hardcover. So I am reading uh, from chapter 18. It's a scene that, that, that hopefully will stand alone quite well. I will just say that the main character is Olivia and she sees visions. So what we have in this scene is she is at an abandoned villa. She has already seen a vision where when the house was being constructed, they basically massacred some fae to get them out of it. Out of the out of the way. There are Fay in Canesville, uh, so they did this, and now she has fallen into a into a second uh, vision while she's at the uh, villa. The sun flashed as it had done earlier, and I was again plunged plunged into night. This time there were lights everywhere, the villa glowing with them. Music poured from the open windows. Not ethereal fae music, but the sounds of a string quartet. I could hear chatter and laughter, too, human in origin. The house was whole and new. Three figures walked down the curving steps. None looked, looked older than me. All three were wearing gorgeous empire-waisted dresses. The one in the middle was no more than twenty, with finger-curled blonde hair. She'd re- she, she referred to Nathaniel Mills by, by his given name, which left little doubt who she was, his bride, Letitia Rose- Roosevelt. But if my history was right, Letitia never spent a night in this house. She, I looked up at the, at the villa again, the lights blazing, music and laughter pouring out. It's Letitia's grand welcoming party, the first time she sees the house her husband built. And the last time she sees it because I wheeled and stared at the swimming pool. Then I, then I turned back to the three girls. No, I said, you can't. They stepped right through me, still chattering and giggling. Aren't you glad we pulled you away from, from that dull party, said one of Letitia's companions, a dark-haired beauty with perfect skin and bright blue, blue eyes. The brunette walked to the to uh, the pool, lifted her skirt, and lowered herself beside the water. Then she dangled her fingers and let out an exclamation. It's warm. What magic has your handsome groom wrought to accomplish that? There's a heating system of some sort, Letitia said. I don't quite understand it. Who cares, said, said the light-haired girl. If it makes swimming water warm at night, it is the best kind of magic. She laughed. There was something about that laugh, a tinkling music almost too low for the ear to detect. They're fey. No, I said. I hurried over to the two of the two girls, the light-haired one now sitting on the edge of the pool, dangling her feet in. The brunette swished her hand back and forth in the water, and under the surface, seaweed swirled about her hand like the spats on a horse. Come here, Letty, the light-haired girl called, Sit with us. Look at the water, her companion said. Isn't it marvelous? They reached out their hands as Letitia walked, walked over. No, I said, jumping between them. I turned to the brunette. 
don't do this. She's not responsible. He is. I knew it was pointless. These were only phantasms, memories. But the brunette met my gaze and she smiled, a terrible and beautiful smile. We know who is responsible and this is how we repay him. Take from him as he took from us. That is our way. Death is quick. Regret is not. Leticia walked through me and took the young woman's hands. Shall we go for a swim? The light-haired one said. What? Leticia forced a ragged laugh and pulled back. You really are quite amusing, but I ought to go. When the women didn't release her, she, she said, This isn't funny. Please. They opened their hands, but her fingers re- remained stuck to theirs. Well, what? Leticia said, back backpedaling. We're taking you for a swim, pretty Letty. A swim in your new pool. They wrapped their arms around her and leapt, and as they did, their gowns puddled at their feet, and their hair tumbled from its tins, cascading over their bare their backs. The brunette's skin darkened too, turning as black as, as her hair. Their bodies thickened, necks lengthening as they trans, transformed. I raced to uh, the pool's edge. It didn't matter that it would do no good. I shouted at the Kelpies to to stop. They dove into the water with Letitia Letitia trapped between them, flailing wildly. Even Even after the water closed over them, I heard her screaming. Down they went, so fast and so deep that I was certain that the pool bottom was a mirage, that somehow it opened into the lake itself. Otherwise... The Kelpies hit the bottom, and they kept going right through it, vanishing. Letitia did not. Her body jolted, and a red flume of blood swirled up, suffusing the water, spreading out in crimson tendrils. She floated to the top, her pale blue dress billowing around her. Blood kept pumping from her crushed skull, an impossible amount of blood, the, the water darkening with it. She floated there her hair and dress swirling around her. Then she dropped out of sight into the bloody depths. I'm sorry, I whispered. Why? said a voice beside me. I looked over to see the brunette Kelpie back in human form now. This is how we repay death. We know no other way. We have no understanding of mercy. We answer fire with fire, blood with with blood. In our hearts, there is no other way. Protect those we hold dear. The rest can fall to ash and dust. And that's a bit from Deceptions. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's always great to hear an author actually read their own words out loud. I think it's very special and we really appreciate it. Thank you. So thank you for joining us on the Great Lakes Horror Company. As Kelly mentioned, book three of the Canesville series, Deceptions, paperback is available now. And book four of the Canesville series, Betrayals, in hardcover, is available now absolutely everywhere. You just need to walk into a bookstore and you're going to see a wall of it right in front of you. Or you can visit Kelly online and it's Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y, for those of you who aren't familiar with her and want to check out her work, kellyarmstrong.com. Uh, If you're in Toronto, as we mentioned, you can join Kelly and myself along with members of the Great Lakes Horror Company and the Horror Writers Association Ontario chapter at Fan Expo. We're going to have several panels at the event. Um, All the information will be online. And Kelly is joining us for two of those. 
So you can, um, you can check out Fan Expo at fanexpocanada.com. It runs from September 1st to 4th in Toronto at the Metro Toronto Convention Centre. And for our listeners, thank you for joining us. Until next time, remember, other parents warn their kids not to talk to strangers. I had to warn mine not to eat them. <laughs>